The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. Welcome to the Quirky Dog Podcast, inspired by some of the quirkiest dogs you can ever imagine and the owners who love them. This podcast is brought to you by the quirky couple themselves, Scott and Jess Williams. Their aim is to educate and entertain. Here's Scott and Jess. Welcome, guys, and happy Wednesday. We are coming to you live from Salem, New Hampshire today. And, of course, we are hosting the Quirky Dog Podcast. We have a very special guest here today. She's actually one of my former veterinarians of my own dogs when I was living and going to school um, at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And she works with the Iditarod Dogs. So we're super excited um, to do an interview with her today. But first, we're going to start with the Quirky Tip of the Day. What is that tip, love bug? I would say the tip of the day is, given our guest, that you may want to look into some holistic um, vets for your care, especially if you have a, a senior dog. It's nice to do that complementary Eastern medicine along with your traditional Western vet. It can really help. And if you don't want to, if you're at that point, it's like with us, we had dogs that were had some serious issues that we weren't going to do anything real invasive because they were already at the end of their life cycle. So we did a lot of the um, Eastern medicine that made them much more comfortable for a long time. Yeah, and um, also, even if you have a younger dog with issues, I mean, Eastern medicine, we talk about this over and over and over again. We are big fans of it, and uh, the proof is in the pudding here because Dr. Meyer has seen um, some of my own personal dogs that even you know, too. She saw Kayla and Sarge and all these things. So we have today Dr. Heidi Meyer. She is coming to us. Um, She has her own practice out there, Dr. Dr. Heidi Meyer, PLLC, and uh, she does some Iditarod work. She flies out and does some work in the cold, and she sees patients on a daily basis. So welcome, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming. Okay, there perfect. So um, let's just talk about what you actually do um, in Michigan and what kind of got you on this path. Obviously, you have a DVM, so you went to vet school first, correct? Yes, I'm from Wisconsin originally. I also did an internship at Cornell and came to Michigan, practiced in a busy general practice. Through some personal experiences, I responded very well to acupuncture myself for a chronic sciatica issue in my early 30s. Mm. And that forced me at the time to look at how did that how did that work for a chronic problem? And so at the, I had a classmate who was doing acupuncture in horses who told me she had just met a veterinarian from China who was doing a postdoc in University of Florida. And she said, I met him. If I could train again, I would learn with him. And I kind of took a leap of faith and trained with his name's Dr. Shen Shei. We had 18 people in our class. I'm really fortunate because I've done mo- a lot of classes with him. Now he's teaching and I'm one of the TAs for the course as well at the Chi Institute. Uh, we're, we have huge classes, and a lot of it's online. I'm just really glad. I mean, we had two anesthesiologists, two neurologists, two world-renowned acupuncturists that trained us, and it was a very small, intimate uh, setting. So I was fortunate. That's awesome. That's awesome. And the acupuncture, you do what? Acupuncture, herbs? Um... I, yeah, I would call the practice integrative because I, I'm not against traditional medicine, but I see um, – I got very busy doing – with the acupuncture, I also learned that I needed to know more, so I, under, I trained in Chinese herbal medicine – and then food therapy, which is looking at how to use food to help with healing as well. Uh, and that, I got very busy with it, and I did a master's in it as well. I've probably done everything Eastern you can do, and I'm, again, not against general pra- uh, integrative practice, or, or integrative, but not against general practice yeah. in the traditional sense. Uh, but I, you know, we, we changed the practice more to do look at you know, how to treat other problems. And it was through my own experiences, I think, in getting busy with it. 
And then it was hard to change, hard to practice differently. You know, once you start looking at it like that, actually a practice I worked in, they would ask the clients at first when I was still in general practice, do you want the extended version of the, you know, the exam or the quick one? And people would ask me after they picked the 20 minute version, what would be different? I was like, well, everything, but you You wanted the quickie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you want vaccines, and I'm not, again, I'm not anti-vaccine, but it's like, well, we would have talked about different things and, you know, individual. Yeah. And specifically for me, um, I, one of the dogs that you saw most frequently probably was my older border collie, Kayla, and she had some renal issues and we kept her going for, uh, I mean, years because she was out here for a couple of years and, mm-hmm. you know, that supportive stuff really helps them. And that my favorite thing, and I haven't seen this since you, uh, we did a little senility point on her head when she got into her senior years and it really helped because I was like, Hey, she's looking a little foggy. Can we do anything else? And I have never seen anyone else. And I, my dogs have seen other acupuncture people and it really was amazing. And we did lose her to renal failure, but her quality of life was like great up until like the day of, and she lived till 14. So it really is amazing what can happen. No, that's great. And that's, that's common because we can sometimes avoid using pharmaceuticals, but that might be a concern in an arthritic dog or such that might mm-hmm. you know, hasten the kidney issues. And the blood flow was a big part of things too. So with your dog and mentioning this one, yeah, <laughs> and then just acupuncture itself because it's kind of moving blood and with age, things get stiff and stagnant. And yeah, I know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to touch on the food therapy stuff a little? Well, I, it's interesting to me. I did take a picture of one of those charts when I was at the vet that talked about the hot food and the cold food yeah. stuff, you know, and it was, it's just interesting about all, it's same with us too. I was reading, uh, uh, Jess and I do a lot of meditating and I'm always trying to learn more about that because it can be a frustrating thing for people to do on a regular basis. And uh, one of the guys that I was watching was talking about onions being not a good, it was a, I think it was a cold or a hot, something about onions. He said, you shouldn't be eating onions because it's not good for your whatever, maybe your chi. I don't know what the <laughs> hell it was about. But so, he, he had a couple foods for humans that he said you should stay away from if you're on a spiritual path and you want to keep your body calmer, you know? So how does the food therapy stuff work for you? Because obviously that's like a segment of what you do. And of course we don't, I know we don't give onions to. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Thank you for clarifying professionally. <laughs> My dog ate half a bag. I didn't know what was. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, simple, a simplistic way to look at it might be not that you're simplistic. <laughs> so, say you had an itchy dog, or if I had a patient coming for itching, you know, in traditional medicine, we may use certain medications not based on what the individual looks like. But for Eastern medicine, or even just integrative practice, it doesn't even have to be integrated, but just looking at the individual. If a dog is itchy and dry and feels hot to touch, you know, we're going to treat that dog differently than somebody who's greasy, damp, maybe uh, lethargic, mm. uh, smells, you know, there's so dry, flaky, you know, so it makes sense if you look at herbs and, and food, if something is more warm and you're not going to give that to somebody who already feels hot. Yeah. Could you give me a tip on a greasy dog? <laughs> I have a greasy dog. Yeah. I so do. <laughs> the dog, the dog, the, he's, we give him a bath and like a week later he smells. And all Scott's and, dogs are greasy. It's just him. It, it, the Malinois especially. I just want to put baby powder on them and, and comb, brush it out. You know? But they're still hot because they're Malinois. So yeah. Not, Always. Not, not to generalize. But, <laughs> but yeah, so sometimes, you know, that's where we're looking at, um, you know, is there some, with chronic things are often is some deficiency and then some things that might be excess. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're trying to support that with clearing the excess and then trying to tonify deficiency. So a dampness could mean there's a GI deficiency it would depend on, you know, other questions about the dog and what the dog looks like. A dampness is the greasy <laughs> dampness it, and greasy. It, it can be, or yeah. it could be some, it could be, you know, it could be dietary, but probably isn't completely, you know, caught. 
diet, but what you feed and then what herbs and things mm-hmm. to support the underlying issue, if that makes sense, because damage yeah. doesn't occur. But certain constitutions are more prone to certain issues, too. Well, I've had, you know, out of the two Malinois, uh, well, just two that I've had and one I currently have, we're always that, you know, loco yeah. is a greasy dog, yeah. too. Really, they just need more baths, so then that's where I step yeah. in. And I, <laughs> surprisingly, the shampoo and the forest dryer really gets them nice and clean, I mean, so after, whatever. after six months, he's so greasy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. All right, so let's get talking about this Iditarod stuff. How did you get involved in that? You've been doing it for a few years, right? It was my fourth year this year, and two of my four years have been, you know, I did uh, the COVID years, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I got interested. I went to Alaska in the summer and did a kind of off the beaten path trip uh, in, in 2016, I think it was, and met some people that told me that, you know, they had, we looked at some of the sled dogs when I was there and they said, hey, you should come in the winter. And we, you know, people there, a lot of them have small planes. They said, we can fly you to checkpoints. You should come. And actually, they told me at the time I should come and I would be like a reality show <laughs> of Heidi Meyer, veterinary acupuncturist of Alaska. <laughs> 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 pa- parachuting into yeah. checkpoints. <laughs> no, I'm like, okay, because there's so many reality last week. But then seriously, they talked to me about coming in the winter. And so I thought, what the heck, I'm going to do it. And long story short, they, they there was it was the winter of 2017. There was a lot of weather issues and they decided not to go. So I was like, well, that's too bad. And then I started to think, I'm sure people go to the Iditarod as a spectator or dog handler. So I found somebody kind of short notice that would take me to checkpoints and he was flying international kind of tourists as well, but small scale. And so I, I signed up as a dog handler. I dog handled for Nicholas Petty, who's one of the mushers who's from France originally. And I ended up getting to work with his dogs a little bit. And they, they the year I went, they moved the start from Anchorage to Fairbanks. That's kind of, I thought last minute, but this is Alaska. Things change all the time. It was two weeks before. And I was like, what the heck? So they moved the start because there was too much ice in the Alaskan range. And so I, they, they moved the start by a day. So they needed a lot of handlers. So I went up to Anchorage, or I'm sorry, from Anchorage to Fairbanks and, and got to do a lot of dog handling with the mushers at the start. And so I, I at the time, I thought maybe I would apply as a veterinarian, but I wanted to see what the race was like. And I certainly sure. didn't want to be involved in something I didn't think was run well. And I was very impressed and very intrigued when I was there. But that trip looked glamorous, you know, compared to when you're actually working it. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I look, and I thought it wasn't, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Alaska is different. But it was. I've been there, you know, the four times in March, and I. It, it's very. It's all very interesting. So I applied the next year. I applied in, and would be called a rookie vet. My clients thought that was funny because they're like, you're, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's something you're a rookie, but you know, first time. And so there were like three days of classes we take. I got asked in as an alternate, and I thought they probably told everybody that. <laughs> And I got asked in like a few weeks before and I thought it was great, but I got the list of supplies and was kind of in shock at first too. It's like all the survival gear, you know, sign your life away for uh, <laughs> flying in these little planes, but it's all run very well. But the details of it are, you know, pretty exciting and, and sure. they really do an amazing job of logistics of getting all, all running. So that's how it happened. And the first year I helped more behind scenes with what are called return dogs that are removed from the race for a reason, usually of the fact that something subtle has been going on and we can talk about, I know it's not like, I could talk for hours, but I know we can't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, they, they, there's a lot of handling of, there's a lot of dogs. And so if dogs are taken from the team and it's usually because the, there's a subtle problem, that dog has to get back to the handler and, you know, there are veterinarians, so there are probably about 50 vets involved uh, in any race. That's a lot. Yeah, no sure. No kidding. It's like a musher per vet. And I'm like, well, no, it's not set up like that. But yes, kind of true. This year there were 46 mushers. There were 50 vets. There were a lot of rookie vets this year. Uh, but there's vets at every point of the race and they have to be, um, you know, there's staff there 
to check the dogs as they come into the checkpoints and then also to manage if there's any issues. Uh, they're trying to prevent issues and, and they do. It's amazing how it all runs, really. I, I have a, a medical care for the dogs. I have a question. Are there animal advocates at these checkpoints? Like in the, in the movie studios, there's someone there to make sure that the dog doesn't overwork or the kid doesn't overwork, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Not, you know, this, the Iditarod's different than other dog races because it's all remote. And the last, again, two of the four years I've worked have been during COVID time. So there's been like this year, there were limited people involved because of the, we were tested all, all the time, not all the time, seven times I think while I was there and then worked with certain people in a bubble. So they weren't but, and I wouldn't say that's a non-essential person, but there weren't people that I recall something necessarily like that. But there's, but there's, you've got four to six vets, which sure. I think are, well, that's yeah. You I guys, was gonna you say, guys are the yeah. Advocates. I was going to say because you don't have that as much on a movie set. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the reason that I asked that was because I did a little bit of research on the Iditarod, and uh, they were talking about. I I said to Jess, I'm sure a lot of dogs die on the in that race, and not not each race, but. It, yeah, it's right. it's it looked like it averaged about two dogs a year based on I read there was like around thirty dogs almost twenty eight over the past fifteen years or yeah it was yeah, like fifteen it's not a lot right now and then there were none in the last two years there was um, two thousand nineteen I had a medical issue I didn't go I don't remember the years before that there've been less and less because of all the all the medical kind of you know, sure. It seems like once they moved you up from Ricky, the dogs seemed to live long That's more. It. All of them lived once you, <laughs> once once your status got up. All right, we're going to go to break super quick, and when we get back, we are going to talk more about I did a rod racing with Dr. Heidi Meyer. Does your dog seem anxious? Would you like your dog to relax? Do you want to feel more in control? Would you like your dog to cooperate? HowToCalmYourCanine.com That's HowToCalmYourCanine.com Okay, so I have a question for you, and I think I know the answer, <laughs> but I haven't participated in the Iditarod. <laughs> and he's not a vet, but and he does think he knows a lot of things about life. <laughs> I'm, the question is, what's the most common issues you see with dogs during the race? And I would assume it's pad problems. You know, actually not, and that's interesting. The dogs, and I know there was a question from you guys before this about the mushroom secret, which I get asked a lot too. The dogs wear booties, and they get changed each time they stop, so there's thousands of booties. In the oh, it's just like runners. Yeah, and it's mostly because of the preventing ice and snowballs and such in the feet. So, right. um, so feet aren't as much. There are occasional foot problems, but the biggest ones, you know, the dogs front load more because they're, you know, running – Pushing into it, yeah. And on their right, there are some inclines and such. And a lot of the races run on frozen rivers, so that's flat. But there's, you know, Alaskan range and such. So shoulder, carpal, wrist issues. And, and I'll be honest with you, those dogs are so resilient that normally, and the mushers know their dogs. I mean, it's typically the mushers saying something's off with my dog. They always love when there's somebody integrative there. Right. Because if they get to know you and such, because sometimes they will ask us to look at a dog. And, I, you know, honestly, they have seen something very subtle. Uh, and it'll it either sometimes it'll show up then on exam or when they're rusting a little bit, and then sometimes you know it's it, they often they they will they make the decision to you know to say I don't want the dog to run anymore because something's not quite right. Right. Muscle pulls too, triceps, um, and typically when they are rested, they are they are quickly fine. But those are often I mean they're mild musculoskeletal issues are probably the biggest ones. Occasionally, uh, 
if a dog's not pulling, and I think some mushers will bring dogs that, you know, the dogs that have run the Iditarod before in that kind of race, obviously no, you know, have had experience, but dogs that haven't run that type of race, they have to do some, they have to do certain races before to do it. Uh, but then some, some, some dogs become known as kind of like non-pullers if they start not pulling their weight, so to speak. Yeah. They're, they're just going with the flow. Kind of funny running with your harness, but don't yeah. run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That, that would be me if I was a dog. <laughs> yeah, that, that, he wouldn't even he wouldn't even have an injury. But yeah, they probably are very stoic, right? I mean, they they're doing their job. And those dogs aren't. And I've done a little bit of dog mushing in the UP, and it's funny those kind of dogs. They're they're not tired at all. So yeah, the dogs we get out of the race, and they're like, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with them. But if they've learned to, you know, if they aren't, if they've decided that they're not going to pull, uh, which is you know, they're they're running fourteen dogs. It used to be sixteen. There's fourteen dogs, two abreast. So those dogs, I mean, the lead dogs. They're far away from the musher, so they're right. you know, going by the you know they 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 like what they do, uh, but uh, you know again if there's if it's it's usually more mild musculoskeletal. Occasionally there'll be something like a diarrhea, and the dogs are when they're running. Mm. They're incredible athletes. They've been studied a lot. They're the highest level of performance athletes I believe that there is. They eat ten thousand calories a day when they're running, which you know that's like a ton of high fat, high protein food. So occasionally it can be a diarrhea issue. You know, if they're not eating enough to hold their weight, uh, they they will be. You know, they'll they'll come out of the race. You know, if they're not, they have to look at a certain body. We have to be a certain body score. They're scrutinized. You know, hugely. And a lot the mushers know. You know yeah. To be a blood dog, you have to be a dog who knows how to rest and knows how to eat well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dog, a picky eater, or when they rest, the dogs start to rest instantly. It's hard sometimes. Not hard, but we have to. When the dogs come into a checkpoint, we check them immediately because if they put straw down for the dogs those dogs are laying down right immediately they're sleeping yeah yeah exactly so if a dog is not like that or doesn't eat well they're not going to be able to do that kind of race and then what about like what do you what if you have a muscle muscular skeletal thing Um, the coffee's getting to me what do you do i mean what do you do at that moment are the dogs pulled or like you slip a remedal or and most often again it's the mushers releasing a dog and leaving a dog so at the checkpoints there are there are mandatory rests that they have to do there's a 24-hour rest they do at one point there are two eight-hour rests and then there are at other times they then they can strategize where they're going to do things to a point but there's some enforced areas they have to do that so as vets go what our checkpoint vets are we check dogs when they come into the area the mushers will come to us and say can you check this dog or this dog's having an issue they volunteer a ton of information they know their dogs actually some of them i've seen towards the end of the race where they're exhausted and uh, actually, this last time I had a young young lady musher who t- had had, a, I guess, some kind of encounter where a moose was, it wasn't anything dangerous, but somehow she, the team, uh, you know, got away from her for a little bit, but she got her team back and she's totally calm and she's telling me every little detail about every dog, you know, like check this one as a little paw this mm-hmm. and, and they know their dogs, you know, they, and they are checking their dogs constantly when they stop. They, they feed their dogs, they look at their dogs, you know, they know, so they'll say this dog isn't running right. Uh, you know, sometimes it's apparent, but more often they're volunteering that. And then the, we then then sometimes they'll say, I'm going to leave this dog. And then they become what's called a return dog. Um, and then the dogs get, we take care of the dogs and the dogs get flown back ultimately to be returned to the team at the end of the race. They can't, if they leave a dog, they can't add it back into the race. Right. It's just short a dog. Yeah. Right. And they can't use certain medications and things. Now in a practice, what I do like alternative medicine, actually the first year I won, I thought, Oh, you know, that'd be cool. I can do acupuncture. I'm glad I didn't say anything. Cause first off, it's sometimes minus 35. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A lot of it's outside. 
we have indoor areas, there's limited time. I would say it's not the, always the cleanest in, environment, but there's not a lot of time, you know, so I'm sure. glad I didn't open my mouth and say, <laughs> can I put needles on these dogs? Yeah. But, I, but we could do, I could do non-traditional medicine for the dogs that are returned out of the race. Often the fact that they're actually take very little if they rest or they may use, we may be able to give them say a dose of a non-steroidal. We try not to as much because, you know, the, if they have this high fat, high protein diet, and if they're put on certain medications and diarrhea can be a concern, but most of them, once they are rusted, are fine. You know, the mushers know how to massage. A lot of them have veterinarians they work with. Um, these are elite athletes. It's not sure. the way it had been initially. You know, they're not running. Uh, it's, it's become more of a performance sport. The dogs, um, they've studied the dogs now to suggest that these are like at universities that study them, that these dogs have some genetic ability to put nutrients into their cells faster than other dogs. So they're just, it's, they're pretty amazing athletes. I mean, they run blood work, ECGs on all of them. They're yeah. a bit different and they're really cool dogs to work with. They're very pleasant, you know, dogs. And they, a, they like it cold and they like, they like to run. You know, yeah. They like, they like to work. I have a quick question about, and this is again, a, a kind of a pet dog owner question. Um, they... <laughs> I've been led to believe they they perspire through the paws, through the pads, right? So they have four boots on all through, you know, for dozens of miles, and it's all just coming out of the the tongue, the mouth. The, the well, how does that work? Well, these are cold, dry environments. Other than it can be wet, and sometimes now with whatever you whatever anybody believes about global warming, it's very apparent there's climate issues in Alaska. Sure. Sometimes there's overflow, or there's where areas where the Bering Sea has been, you know, melting and things at certain times. Other times it's really cold and dry. So they the feet care. There is a lot of feet care. They do use different ointments and such. They take the booties off whenever they're resting, mm-hmm. and then they put new booties on. I mean, these are light yeah. booties, and so between the toes, you can get toe cracks and things. There are different liniments that they use. There's like their own musher secrets, I guess. But we sure. have depending on what's going on. But some of them will put a powder in the booty, uh, you know, to try to with the perspiration. Right, so keep they it dry. Are constantly managing the feet, but those booties come off when they stop and then they put a new booty on, you know, when they leave. So sometimes there's a 24 hour period where they don't have something on their feet. Sure. You know, if they've rested that long or eight hours. So yeah, that's nice. Yeah. And the whole race runs maybe, uh, you know, nine, 10 days is probably the, the, the kind of the average. Uh, some are done in eight days. Uh, for a period of two hour periods and then some variety of other four hour, three, four hour times that those feet are, you know, not covered. You must be exhausted after a whole eight day stretch, huh? Well, you know, I, this, I've been there, I usually go for about two weeks. This year was different because um, we ran it, the race was run in a straight line. It was run through the Alaskan range and the, I shouldn't say it was a loop. It was run, usually it's a straight line up to Nome. This, this year it was a loop. Uh, every year, alternate years, they change the route from a north to the south route, but it always ends in Nome. Last year ended in Nome. We mm-hmm. didn't know last year if they would call the race during it. It was probably the only sport, major sport still running during COVID because it started, you know, early in March. Right. And uh, we ended, uh, we, uh, the day I flew back was the day our governor had called a state order, you know, a stay-at-home order. Um, so this year, um, you know, this year they changed it. I didn't know for sure it was going to run until a few weeks before, but it went 400 miles less, but it went through the Alaskan range twice. And so I think psychologically for the mushers, they, they said that was hard because they knew where they had issues or, you know, that they had to go through a gorge twice and yeah, right. usually working forward. <clears throat> uh, but that was, you know, that was a bit different this, this year. And then I know with COVID, everything was different, but if it's a non COVID year, are there a lot of like spectators? Are there a lot of other people besides just the handlers and the staff and everything? Yeah, there typically are. This year, there were no spectators. We had a few, little bit of media come, uh, like the, the Anchorage News, and then there was, a, I think, Insider and, and uh, some of the sports 
very small. This is a small scale stuff anyway. Uh, but so there are people that were volunteering and such, no spectators this year. Even at the start, they didn't allow spectators in. So it's not, I think some you know, family members, uh, limited dog handlers. Everybody was tested. I was tested twice before I left Michigan. I was tested at the Anchorage airport when I got there. I was tested again before I entered the conference center. And then I had a quarantine. And that was what of a state we had to do. The mushers were tested a lot. We had a state epidemiologist from Alaska that was there involved with things and trying to make sure, and she would go to checkpoints and test mushers and such. There were, they had one musher that came up positive, but it was before coming into a checkpoint and there was no, not any other issue. Uh, and that, that apparently came through someone he was exposed to, you know, a handler. Um, this race is different because they don't, there's no driving to checkpoints. Apparently other races, I have only worked this race, but other <laughs> races, there's driving to checkpoints and handlers involved. This this one's different because uh, it's all remote. Yeah. So normally you have villages involved. This year they were at like ghost towns. I, actually, when I first heard this, I thought it was crazy and you couldn't believe I was going to do this. I thought it was kind of like a bad dream. We were sleeping in tents. Oh, my gosh. I was going to ask. No hotels out there at the <laughs> no, checkpoint. No, no. So, I mean, I, I slept in an Arctic tent with a propane heater. and uh, Was it comfortable? That, that I, yeah. At one checkpoint, it was in a beautiful uh, area where they had a safety cabin that had heat. So, that was good. There was The lowest I was at in that tent was it was minus 15. It was a little hard to stay warm, but my gear was fine. Yeah, that's a little chilly for me. <laughs> this part sounds crazy. I thought, actually thought I was crazy this year. <laughs> But but it wasn't so bad. There, I'm sorry. There's a phone ringing. There was one checkpoint where it was minus 50 to six minus 60 for at least a few days, and there was no heated building. I mean, that's so minus 15. You were putting your bathing suit on, I guess, at that point, right? <laughs> I thought it was pretty. I thought it was pretty fortunate. So usually the uh, usually the checkpoints involve a native Alaskan village, uh, or sometimes it's not a native Alaskan village. But most of them are, and that's it's a big deal for them. And sometimes they'll put people up in a community center. And they're involved in some of the things. And so last year, you know, when the COVID started, we were instructed not to interact. So it was different in that way. Yeah. Because I think mm -hmm. for them, it's a, a, a big positive thing for them. Sure. You know, the, the, the villages and such. And More people than they see for the rest of the year. That's their big, big deal. <laughs> so this year, again, the tents, the ghost town. Well, you know, it was a little, it was, and they tried to put us in places for longer periods, which I was fortunate. I was able to go to three places. I got moved around a bit. But a lot of people... Um, had to stay in somewhere for eight to nine days. So imagine being somewhere it was minus <laughs> minus fifty. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. You you need to put a little meat on your bones. I know you. You're tiny. You need to you need to fatten up if you're going to be tent living next time. So I think this Iditarod stuff is so fascinating. I'm so excited. Um, I mean, I I love you regardless. But when I saw you doing this, I'm like, this is so uh, exciting. And not many people are doing it. Obviously, I mean, you're one of the few people doing it. But outside of the race, what is the favorite your favorite aspect of your career? I don't care if it has to do with the Iditarod or just in general, but what would your favorite aspect of your career be? Yeah, you know, I like, I, I enjoy looking at chronic problems or sometimes acute problems too, and being able to help when, uh, with the clientele that are going above and beyond, you know, the, the average care. So it's wonderful to have people come in and, you know, have chronic problems and, and be willing to try things like the Eastern medicine. So I think making differences where there's not much hope uh, or avoiding something, you know, with that might be a harder situation, you know, for an animal. So that part is great. I mean, I do like seeing geriatrics. We some days I think, my gosh, it's like our average age of patient might be 13, 14. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of old cats. A lot of help me up harnesses going around. <laughs> I know, right, exactly. But I mean, for instance, I had a, a new client, Bernice Mountain Dog, come in the other day and the dog can barely walk and she's 10, which is very geriatric for Bernice Mountain Dog. We've made some big differences in a few weeks. So it's, you know, to see that kind of situation, sometimes for me, it's hard to see things where, 
know, the referral, uh, it doesn't happen soon enough where, you know, where, where the owner asks their vet, is there anything else we can do? We read about acupuncture and then say, they say, oh, sure. You know, we know, yeah. like, you know, to see things where you can hope to see them sooner. So you know, that part can be frustrating, but, um, you know, it's, it's getting better. I think veterinarians and handlers and trainers like you guys know more to suggest things to people. And people are more educated in that too. So the chronic things helping things where there hasn't seemed to be much hope. Yeah, you're like a miracle worker. I mean, really, I, I'm telling you, I, Kayla stayed alive at least four or five more years, and there was a, some legitimate renal stuff. And it's it's nice to see the quality of life be so great because all we want is for our dogs to be happy and healthy for as long as they can with as much quality as they can. You know? Yeah, I was going to say the last two vets, our present vet and our previous vet, both had a holistic vet on staff in their practice as well. So they're really integrating that into their practice. Uh, I think just it's getting to be common. Yeah, we're really trying getting... to brainwash New England. You need a Western vet and an Eastern vet. That's the way you do it. <laughs> well, that's great. And it's great when they're in the same practice because I think that helps others learn too. And I will say even, you know, even here in the Midwest and say Michigan State, they, you know, they send interns for acupuncture as students now. And so I'm glad to see or openness and that certainly helps to you know, be accepting of that at an academic level or in a practice you know, for everybody to see the benefit of it. Well, and like I say, the proof is in the pudding and it's working. So it, it, there's no harm to trying it. You're yeah, not just gonna... don't wait until your dog is <laughs> a, a day away from dying yeah, and then that, bring yeah. him in. Yeah, you're not the last stop. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything that you're doing for the Iditarod dogs. I'm seriously so pumped about the whole thing. I see your pictures on Facebook and it's so fascinating to me. And thank you for all the clients that you help and especially how you've helped us. I mean, you've seen our dogs and they lived a long, long time because of it. So thank you very save, much. Save a little space for us in the tent next year. <laughs> We're going to come up to the checkpoint. Watch the race. We'll bring the greasy Mel. He can warm you up. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank we'll you. see you next week. Uh, in the meantime, keep it quirky. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.